Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six years. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down Swanfield, and we'll see them with... What you doing down here, you surely man? Look, I know the Premier League is the best league in the world, okay? No sane, sentient being could ever argue the point. But considering that exalted status in the world of football, isn't it reasonable to expect a decent atmosphere to be bouncing off your TV screen when you sit down to watch games involving some of the biggest teams in the world's biggest league? Hello and welcome to Monday's Second Captain's Football Podcast. Biggest and best league, I should say. It's a glorious sunny day here in the middle of Dublin as we record, and yet Ken and Murph... And yet, I choose to start the show on a downer. How are you guys? Uh, I'm, good, you I'm good. I'm good. My mood has managed to survive that <laughs> brutal onslaught there. Just what everyone tunes into a podcast for. Oh, that was rubbish, wasn't it? What a load of rubbish that yeah, was. Just people moaning about stuff. What? Maybe what? it's just my choice of games, Ken, before okay. we get into this. It's, it could be recency bias. Yeah. I'm thinking of yesterday's matches, my sketchy memory. By the time I get to Monday, I struggle to remember what happened on a Saturday, Ken. Right. So my sample size is the two games that were on on a Sunday. But Jesus, there wasn't much excitement around the place, was there? What's he know about the Premier League? Well, I'm not saying I know everything about the Premier League there, buddy. But, you know, Arsenal Man United looked like a meaningless mid-table walkabout between two clubs with no history. Hmm. And Liverpool, Southampton. Yeah. Well, yeah. the pitch was very dry. Very dry. That's what Jurgen Klopp said anyway. I don't know if they can't water it. Uh, but he did say the pitch was very dry. My question to you, especially if you're a season ticket holder or you make regular enough trips across the water to go and see your team play, my question to you is, whatever happened to the great match day atmosphere in English football? Um, and it didn't die out with the start of the Premier League, like people say. There have been good atmospheres over the years. I'm sure there still are. Yeah. It just seems a little bit harder to locate them. Um, well, I guess in certain in the games that you're talking about, Liverpool Southampton was kind of... It's one of those situations Liverpool expected to win. It's it's tense rather than Southampton didn't really have anything to play for. Although well, the way they celebrated the the penalty save, it was real Macedonia against Ireland, wasn't it? Southampton really had their teeth into that game. It was like this means a lot to us um, to uh, to to come out of here with a result. Um, the other one, I mean, Arsenal Manchester United have both had disappointing seasons, certainly in the league. All the more reason to find a bit of hate in your heart for this. Former great rival of yours, and to maybe it's just luxuriate in a victory over them. Maybe it's just har- harder to hate people when the sun's shining. You know, maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe that's it. On you know, maybe the same feeling that we all had yesterday. 
mean, I don't know if you spent any time online yesterday, but basically uh, on my Instagram or on Facebook or anything like that, it's just everyone out having a great time, mm. enjoying themselves, going for hikes. I mean, that's what I was. Or doing, people actually. in the stadium looking at other people's Instagram, kind of envying. Yeah, what am I doing here in this stupid football game? Why were you sitting at home looking at other people's Instagrams doing nice stuff in the sunshine? Why weren't you out there? Oh, I was out there. Oh, you were saying. And then you got back and you had a Yeah, I mean, I was about to post a smugly, (laughs) you know, outdoorsy type. You and your dog. Well, I mean, well, listen, what was going to be in the photograph wasn't important again. What I'm trying to say here is that you know, it, I, I only didn't do it because I saw that literally every person <laughs> in Great Britain and Ireland had done the exact same thing as me. Mm. So there's no, nothing really for me to feel all that good about. But maybe that's just maybe that's just what happens. Owen. Maybe people just decided yesterday, ah, football. Who cares? It'll still be there tomorrow. Not everybody, Murph. Thankfully, a few Liverpool fans saved the day with their Jeremy Corbyn banner. They had a bit of passion in their souls, albeit political passion, when they started sporting. <laughs> Nothing to do with football. We're going to talk politics with Tony Barrett today, and Daniel Harris is going to be on after suffering through the Emirates yesterday. Now, as today is a Monday, this show is available to non-members and ratified second captains members alike. All our listeners are, of course, equal. Well, some are more equal than others, Murph, mm-hmm. to quote a famous... <laughs> but to those of you who haven't put your faith in the World Service just yet, you missed out on a hell of a week last week. The best man I ever saw for to knock back a baby power. I don't mean to say now that he was a drunkard or anything like that, but... Oh, it's a goal, I think. Oh, well saved, sir. Baby power was gone. I saw him actually do it. They decriminalise domestic violence unless it's in cases of serious injury or a repeat offence. So you get one free go. The point about this is, is it wrong to beat your wife? Or isn't it? Quite clear. It is. Yes. Is it? It's is it anyone? Is it wrong? Is it wrong to discriminate against gay people? Or isn't it? Of course, it's wrong to discriminate against anyone. I publish stuff. You know, my job is to publish stuff. Do you ever have qualms then about about? Of course. No, of course I have qualms about living in Russia. Like I'm bloody qualms about no, living that, in that, Ireland, no. for example, or whatever. You know what I mean? Or about working for a state organisation or whatever. Of course. Best known, I suppose, under his pen name of uh, Carberry. And well known to put away a baby power, according to the clip we heard uh, earlier there. Not, not that he has any issues. Yeah, I think our, our speaker was quite clear on that. There you are. Just a couple of extracts there from episode 845, GAA on the radio, and episode 848, The Russian Point of View which is the latest Ken Early political podcast and featured a brilliant, challenging conversation between Ivor Crotty of Russia Today, or RT, Ken, I believe it's called. RT, own, he says. And the Ken Early political podcast own, Ken Early, doing the challenging there. <laughs> Thanks so much to, for, to all of our wonderful World Service members and for all the correspondence on last week's programming, which also included much more weighty and important topics, such as Gonzalo Higuain's belly mm. and just mm. how acceptable is a slightly... Rotund how, how frame fat, How fat are you allowed to be in the Champions League these days? And still be one of the best strikers in the world. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So to become a member today for all of that, for five euro a month plus fat, go to secondcaptains.com and join us for daily, completely independent, commercial-free broadcasting. Now, Ken, please report on some sport. So N'Golo Kante, now the double player of the year winner, football writers player of the year, in addition to the PFA players of the year. So I guess it's time to start talking about how overrated N'Golo Kante is. Doesn't score, doesn't really set up too much, doesn't have the ball, doesn't beat a man. I mean, how many, you know, how much of a pedestal are we going to put this guy on? You know what I mean? What has he really done for? It's a necessary football? corrective, Ken. That's what we're do- we're doling out today. Yeah. So he's got the got the recognition. Uh, now it's it's all downhill from here for him. But well done on the double award. Well, if Kante was to 
leave Chelsea in the summer mm. and do what he did last year, revitalise another team's fortunes. Say he went to Tottenham, Ken, yes. and they won the league. <laughs> I'd really start believing the N'Golo Kante hype at that point. You don't already believe it. You don't think winning the league in consecutive seasons with uh, Leicester City and then the team that finished halfway down the table the previous season. I need to see more. If I forget enough. Tottenham, yeah, Tottenham's a soft, that's a soft yeah, touch. Give me more. Tottenham are a little <laughs> bit, they are so close as it is. Go to Arsenal, revitalise their fortunes and then you've got yourself a proper player. Well, that would be interesting, Art. And we will talk about Arsenal quite shortly because they, they deserve it. But um, first of all, I want to talk about uh, a man whose season is already over. And yet, who continues to amaze, who continues to dazzle, uh, even from his position lying atop a surgical slab. And that is big Zlatan Ibrahimovic, whose agent, Mina Raiola, um, reports, uh, realized to us some important news from the doctors who needed a dose of salts after opening up Zlatan's knee and seeing the miracle inside. He says, uh, so Minorado says, his knee is so strong that the doctors say they had never seen anything like it. <laughs> he has a knee that it is almost impossible for a football player with a 20-year career to have. It was quite clean. There was no harm in it. I actually sent that on to a friend of mine who immediately responded, it's because he runs five kilometers in every game. <laughs> um, but uh, Zlatan is so strong that the doctor wants him back after his career to do research on him. They work in the world's best research institutions for the knees and ligaments. They research a lot on the subject, and that is why they are better than everyone else. Doctors want Zlatan back to do research on him. So, after Zlatan's career, we will go back and open him up again to do research on his ligaments. <laughs> what was the name of the biographer, who the autobi- the ghostwriter, essentially, who admitted to taking a large degree of poetic license with his story of Zlatan? Uh, oh. The author of the book. I'll get his name anyway, but I can already foresee a follow-up book written from the perspective of Zlatan's knee. Oh, yeah. Something <laughs> like that. Zlatan's knee. I mean, the, the only thing I'd heard about Zlatan's knee before this was that, amazingly, he'd managed to bust all the ligaments. Mm. They all went. This was the, It was like, wow, we've never seen an injury like this. But it turns out they've never even seen a knee like this before. Mm. It's like you've never even seen before. He's injured the knee better than anything you've ever seen <laughs> this before. Is the and now the recovery injury. is going to be the best re- knee recovery you've ever seen. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's pretty much... I, I don't even know why, why Mina Raiola feels the need to s- state this. I mean, is it... I, I guess... Well, I mean, the knee injury was a brief glimpse of mortality. Yeah. You know, appearing into the sort of the Zlatan image. So we need to start rebuilding that immediately. David Lagerkrantz is the Lagerkrantz, who yeah. wrote the absolutely brilliant I Am Zlatan and I maintain it's brilliant just it is. because he happened to put his own slant on it which is what all ghostwriters do anyway. But it's he didn't a, put his own slant on I always find the people who complain about that are just pedantic idiots. What he's looking for is the truth mm. not the facts. The truth is different. The, the boring, oh, did Zlatan say this exactly, using exactly these words? Who cares? It's what did Zlatan mean by the things that he said and did? What was really going on? That David, David I certainly haven't for. heard Zlatan complain about the book. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it was very good. I think, well, your man Lagerkrantz said he was a bit annoyed at first um, reading it and then was like, ah, you know what, actually this is all right. But he was annoyed with himself. No, he was a bit, mm, this is a bit like... Zlatan was. Oh, Zlatan was, sorry. Yeah, but um, he came around to the idea. He was like, oh, I don't know if this really needs to, you know, 
be quite so hard on poor old Pep here. Uh, Although, uh, in the end, he, he made his peace with it and I'm sure he put did. it out there. Plenty of acclaim. Um, but where are we? Uh, Manchester United against Arsenal. Um, a nice little blog by Juan Mata, the, the warrior, wounded warrior who fought his way back into contention. Obviously, our game this weekend has had a disappointing result. Once again, I prefer to take the positive side, his blog says. If only Jose Mourinho would take the positive side once in a while, I find myself wondering, would Manchester United be in a better position than they're in now? Um, I, f- I feel that this was a, uh unnecessarily negative um, approach by Jose Mourinho again in a big match against a vulnerable team that's lost a lot of matches recently uh, with the chance to put themselves back into the you know proper contention in the Premier League and instead we saw a team playing for a draw and, and ended, ending up with a defeat. Were they even playing for a draw or were they almost accepting their fate? I think they were playing for a draw. I mean, Mourinho get, still had a pop afterwards at, at uh, Arsene Wenger saying, oh, you know, do you think it's, do you think I take any pleasure out of seeing a big club like Arsenal not win any trophies for so long? Do you think I, do you think I take pleasure in that? You know, every time I've left here before, all I've seen is those fans crying and this time now they're happy. At least I've got to see them happy. He saw them happy at the um, Charity Shield a couple of years ago. Although, I guess that was Wembley, rather than the um, the Emirates Stadium. Um, but, you know, the 25-match the unbeaten run is over. When it started, they were, I think, six points off the top. Now they're 17 points off the top. They did, however, go one place up in the table over the course of those 25 matches. Although, the team that's behind them, Arsenal, who are having their worst season under Arsene Wenger, are two points behind with a game in hand and look now likely to finish ahead of Manchester United. So I find this to be not a very impressive performance this season. I think they should have been, um, I think particularly in the league, they've been negative and the negativity has cost them. I see Duncan Castles, who, uh, as, as, as anybody who follows, you know, who, who's interested in Manchester United, Jose Mourinho, Chelsea, over the last few years, will we'll know of the work of Duncan Castles, who is a... Um, uh, a journalist well connected in Portuguese football, um, and I would say I, I don't think he would dispute well connected with the Jose Mourinho camp, and, and often will give a point of view from that camp. I mean, it's all points of view, you know, it's all about looking at the different points of view and interpreting. And he's actually put up a defence of Jose Mourinho. Um, he says on, on on his Twitter, he says on on the criticism of Jose Mourinho for prioritising Europa League over Premier League. Place yourself in the MUFC manager's position. So he. Are you ready? Close your eyes. I'm in there. Close. Okay. Would you concentrate already stretched resources on defeating Manchester City, Arsenal, Tottenham, Southampton, and relegation-threatened Crystal Palace, they're the games, uh, in order to claim a place in the qualifying round of the Champions League? Or would you calculate that the odds of defeating Celta Vigo and Ajax in order to win a major European trophy and automatic qualification to the Champions League were significantly more attractive? Huh? Sorry, I nodded off. <laughs> what was the, and the, yeah, the second one, yeah, the Europa League. You would calculate that the Europa League, the odds of defeating Celta Vigo and Ajax are significantly more attractive. There's a couple of issues with this, I would, I would suggest. Can no, I open my eyes now? You can. Oh. Number one is the fact that it's being presented as a, as a binary choice. You can either qualify for uh, the Champions League by finishing you know, in the top four, or you can win the Europa League, which is not true. You could easily do both or neither. Um. And there's also the fact that this this leaves something out of how it leaves something out about how how Manchester United fans will look at the Premier League season and success or otherwise. And what it's leading out is Liverpool. 
at the moment, Liverpool are in the fourth. Are they fourth or third? They, they're a point ahead of City, maybe with a, with a game more played. But practically, if we assume City are winning, they're, they're the team most likely to, to lose the place mm. in the top four. Yeah, they're third, yeah. The prospect of knocking them out of the Champions League would, I think, be almost as satisfying for a lot of the supporters as winning the Europa League. It would be very pleasing. Preventing Liverpool from qualifying. Oh, I think so. I think it would be. I think it would be big, and there isn't sort of any mention of that. I mean, you know, you know, I don't think Jurgen Klopp is necessarily Jose Mourinho's favorite manager. You know, he did say after that. Remember the the nil nil that they they had at Anfield earlier in the season. Oh, you see, they're not the last wonder of the world after all. It was, yeah, you could see there was a bit of an edge there because he thinks Jurgen Klopp gets a lot of praise. Not only are people saying, "Well, oh, what a wonderful young, vibrant team," and also, "What a nice man." What a what a lot of class he's got, you know what I mean? I think he might stick in stick in a few craws around. Uh, he's younger than uh, Mourinho as well, isn't he, Klopp? A little bit, like a little bit younger. And he's, you know what else he is? I a think lot, that he's a lot taller. taller yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. A lot we've all tall. seen those Cuban heels. <laughs> we all know that. that. Hey, 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 hey. cheap that, shot, cheap that, shot, cheap uh, shot, no, cheap shot. Cut. No, no, it's 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 all relevant. I feel now. This this the, there would be the prospect of of catching overhauling them. I don't think is a thing to be oh uh, underrated, both from the point of view of the Manchester United fans and from the point of view of the Manchester United manager. But I do wonder if you know they're not the last wonder of the world. If Jose Mourinho might act that way at some point, instead of giving so much respect to Liverpool that he seems to assume they're going to win these games, they're going to play Southampton, who they haven't beaten in three attempts so far this season, who knocked them out of the. Uh, the League Cup. I think the other game is nil-nil. Um, and kind of assumes they're going to win, so there's no point in really... You know, he could try to win his own match against Arsenal, but it would almost be wasted energy because we're going to be behind. So there's a gap here, in my opinion, between this idea, oh, they're not that great, and the respect that Jose Mourinho is giving by his actions, mm. they're uncatchable, mm. which seems to be the, 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 way that, um, the way that they were looking at it. Um, so, so yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that game with, with Daniel Harris uh, later on. He was there. And there was more good news for Arsenal, oh, delivered by Ian Wright. Ian Wright, the, the most indiscreet man at Arsenal Football Club, he's always uh, saying whatever he's heard, he just passes it on to his audience. Um, there was the, oh, you know, I, so I was at this dinner with Wenger and he just looked so knackered. I think he's probably, I'm pretty sure he's leaving at the end of the season, you know, which at the moment I would say it looks as though Wenger's going to stay, especially when you lead team to this great victory over a hated rival. If he was going, he'd have gone by now. If he finishes ahead of Jose Mourinho, you know, he's he's turning around and going, yeah, so we're fifth, but I'm ahead of Jose. And you're saying I should leave? He's got the most expensive squad in the world. Everyone thinks he's doing a great job. And here I am, above him in the table. You know, it's a a reasonable case. Um, Ian Wright, though, anyway, says there's more good news uh, because Dick Law, the hated Dick Law, I didn't know he was hated. Who's Dick Law? Dick Law... Is Arsenal's negotiator. Oh, He's their negotiating specialist. He's kind of a Mr. Wolf type. If Arsenal have a crisis they need to solve, they send Dick Law, and he sorts it out. Except uh, sometimes his record hasn't been that good. Uh, according to Ian Wright, when he was supposed to go and sign Ozil, he missed the flight to meet Ozil. How could you do that? Uh, he was also apparently the guy whose idea it was to bid an extra pound for Luis Suarez, forty million and one pounds. Mm. That's a forty. That's a four six zeros and then a one. <laughs> <laughs> now, actually, even though he was only doing it because it was going to trigger a clause, it is a, a sensationally 
<laughs> provocative thing to do. Imagine you were involved in any kind of an auction with, you know, a reasonable sum of money involved. I mean, I guess one would be, you know, if you're if you're putting a bid on a house or something. Mm. And the estate agent rang and said, oh, we've got a bid of, of X. Mm. And then you, after much deliberation, called back and said, I have, my bid is X plus one euro. <laughs> the ball that, is in your court. I think the real estate agent <laughs> might be within his rights to think that this offer is not entirely valid. Are you trying to wind me up? Yeah. And that would be, that would be just, a, uh, just an estate agent rather than uh, the storied franchise uh, Liverpool uh, Football Club. But anyway, where are we? Um, so yeah, I was saying, we were talking a bit about fullbacks uh, last week. We had uh, Jonathan Wilson and Gabriel Marcotti and they ended up actually talking to each other and kind of ignoring us. Oh yeah, this is on we were sitting Thursday. Here and they were just, yeah, I was like, oh, I'd like to get Jonathan's opinion. Jonathan, well, you know what I think, you know, they were talking about fullbacks and one of the points Jonathan made was maybe the word, the very word fullback is, is now a misleading kind of misnomer. Um, Given that these these players, the word the word back, and especially full, a full back, it sounds like an ultra defensive player, but in fact they're they're almost totally attacking players now. Um, they you know they're the main wide players in most teams. And John made the point that lateral, which is the Spanish what the Spanish call them, which basically just means side or you know lateral player, is a better way to think about players who have as much to do in the attacking sense as in the defensive sense. Um, Declan Kelly, J.K. Declan tweeted me, so can, can we discuss the next great tactical innovation, attacking midfielders as fullbacks? That, oh, that was, that's a snide reference to what Manchester United were doing um, and have done in a lot of the big games, you know, in terms of playing uh, extra fullbacks as well as a back four. Yeah, because the point that Jonathan and Gabriele were making wasn't just that these guys go up and down the wing it was that they essentially turn into attacking midfielders mm. it wasn't necessarily you're tied to the, the, the this r- role of kind of roadrunner up and down the left side you know? yeah absolutely so uh, I have to refer here again to, to Duncan Castles because he did an in- interesting interview with Luis Campos uh, Luis Campos is the technical director of uh, or was the technical director of Monaco who is the man given the credit to a large extent for assembling this really exciting Monaco team full of players who everybody else wants to sign now for massively more than Monaco paid for them. Uh, and in the course of that, um, he asks him a little bit about what he thinks about the uh, Premier League, um, uh, you know, in terms of how they do scouting, the increasingly data-driven way that they do scouting in the Premier League. And he says, oh, all the data and methods are very important, but if you don't know how to read and interpret them, they're definitely useless. Um, he basically says it's an essential but not decisive aid. In other words, he uses the eyes, basically. He looks at a player. He also looks at, like, is this player warming up properly? You know, what does this tell me about whether he's really serious or not? You know, these kinds of things. But he mentions, actually, fullbacks. It's an interesting thing. He says, I think most English clubs do not know how to recruit for an issue that I almost think is as cultural as everyone makes the same mistake. English clubs really, really like top attacking players, yet to a large extent make them play alongside medium-quality defences. That, in my opinion, explains their relative lack of success in European competitions, despite them spending exorbitant sums. Um, he says, most teams, there's a difference between great talents in the Premier League and the medium quality of support for the same offensive talent. Most teams lack great defenders and defensive midfielders, so I don't know if they would understand me culturally. This is like, you know, will you come and work in England? The great forwards who are already in the Premier League would be even better if they had the support of great fullbacks, for example. And how many great fullbacks are there in England right now? Maybe just Tottenham's. 
Tottenham, who apparently are going to sell Kyle Walker. Or, or rather, Kyle Walker is saying he wants to leave. Hasn't Seamus Coleman been getting into the Premier League team this season? Yeah, Com- Com- this guy. Coleman, Coleman, to be fair, has been has been good, unfortunately, out uh, out for the next little while. Although, getting a new contract, did he sign it or was he... Yeah, that's what it was announced anyway. Yeah, so maybe maybe he has actually signed a five-year contract. So it was either that he was being offered it or signed it, I can't remember which exactly. So that's good that Everton are kind of supporting him, at least, uh, in this situation. Um, so yeah, that's, it was sort of an interesting thought. Like fullbacks, maybe this area in which the league as a whole is short. I think that was definitely evident uh, in the Liverpool Southampton match. We, you mentioned Owen, we'll be talking to Tony Barrett and more of what went wrong there. Well, what amazes me about this is the incredible consistency of Liverpool in these types of games. It's the same game every time. It's really amazing. Um, you know, the, they have the ball all the time. They just can't open up the team. And I was watching. Barcelona against Villarreal also over the weekend. And it was actually a brilliant game. I don't know if you saw any of it. It was brilliant. Uh, I mean, it was a simple win for Barcelona. But it was more, it was like, okay, well, let's see what Barcelona do when they're, almost all Barcelona's league games are like this. Like this, the type of league games Liverpool have to play recently where, where a team is like, okay, we know that if we sit deep against you, you really struggle with that. So let's do that and see how it goes. And Villarreal were trying to do this to Barcelona. The difference is, you know, Iniesta, um, Busquets, Messi are a lot better at picking passes from midfield to players just outside the box who then create chaos than Liverpool's equivalency were Emery Chan and Lucas. They just couldn't feed the ball into this sort of danger. So basically, the only player they have who can do it is Coutinho, but he's also the player that you want to pass the ball to in order for him to then do something with it. With Barcelona... The big advantage, aside from the quality of players, obviously, is the fact that they've been doing it together for so long. Those guys you mentioned have been doing this for years, so I'm sure they practice it, but there's not much need to do to, to practice. What I mean is it's intuitive, yeah. and they don't have a manager saying, no, you need to be here, you need to be there, you need to send it. They all know it now at this stage, so it's pretty easy to execute that on game day, whereas I would say Liverpool are still early enough on in doing what Klopp wants them to do. Yeah, but Therefore, the- they're ha- just, just even that split second of where am I supposed to run or where am I supposed to pass can... Kill a move with those players. I don't think they'll, they'll ever be able to do it. I mean, uh, you know, who knows? Who, who knows what the uh, what what the plans are? I mean, Emery Chan I think isn't signed a contract. Lucas is obviously an older player, uh, but with those players, it's impossible. Um, I think that if they if they want to solve this problem, because this is a problem they're going to keep having. Like the rest of the teams have adapted to what they saw in the first half of the season. There, there's kind of a, an immunity to that has spread among the other Premier League teams. Like Sam Allardyce said, oh, they leave their fullbacks really high. You have to if you're going to play a possession game. There's actually no other way to play a possession game unless you've got your fullbacks really high up the... Like, if you want to play that type of football, you have to do that. But they need better fullbacks, as uh, Lucas uh, Luis Campos might say. Mm. And also, they need midfield players who can pass really quick balls into the space between the lines because at the moment... It's just not not happening. Report on sport ends here. First of all, I'd like to welcome John Delaney here today. Trying to be critical is well being possible. Building a house to build the foundations for us, the chimney's the top, the chimney for us. It's international football. As well, to, to, to John Delaney, you know, um... uh, the pleasure, the entertainment, the organisation, the skills that you take to everybody is fantastic. But you don't have a chimney unless you've got a very strong foundation. I mentioned the Liverpool supporters unfurling a banner in support of embattled Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. Embattled, fair enough to 
Embattled or beleaguered. Beleaguered or embattled, uh, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, which gives us an excuse to largely ignore events on the pitch at Anfield yesterday. Tony Barrett, I'm sure we'll get to them a little bit later on. But what was the reaction off the field of the other supporters, uh, maybe around Anfield, to this banner yesterday? Was it popular with fans? Well, there were people getting the pictures taken with it, and there were, there were no attempts to remove the banner. And so I think it was built up a little bit too much in some ways. The banner's been at Anfield before previously, obviously not during an, an election campaign, and, and that was... That was obviously the, the idea. And the, the, just to give you some background on it, the, the banner's owned by a fellow called Roy Bentham, who's a, a former construction worker who was blacklisted, uh, and also a Hillsborough survivor. And, and those themes are, are represented on the banner. It's a, it's a banner which expresses working-class solidarity. That is what it's about. It's, it's that idea of socialism in action and... And, and those kind of themes, uh, and it was it was, it was what what we wanted to do was was get attention uh, for the banner during an election campaign because he's he's a keen supporter of, of Jeremy Corbyn and, and usually and I mean if you go back twenty years political banners at Anfield would be pretty normal uh, they'd be what you'd expect to see in lots of ways uh, but 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 now in the Premier League era they stand out because people just don't tend to do that kind of thing that they once did so but it. it it fits in with Liverpool, it fits in with the history of Liverpool, it fits in with the idea that the, the city does stand up for itself in a political sense. It's that it, it fits in with the idea that the, the, the city and its people fight, and it tends to fight against conservative rule in lots of ways. So I think that meant it was always going to be, uh, if not if not spectacularly well-received, it certainly wasn't going to cause a problem at Anfield. So, but it was an interesting one because, as I say, we're just not used to seeing a political expression of football ground, certainly not that type anyway. Well, I wondered actually, Tony, what what the what the history is at Liverpool of this kind of thing. Because Liverpool is obviously a special case with um, the Hillsborough campaign, which went on for a very long time, and everybody knows about this. And this is this is you know an explicitly political cause and was a struggle against uh, state power, which went on for for decades. But in terms of um, this, you said a Corbyn banner might be seen as almost more of a party political thing, certainly in an election season. Has there been much of that sort of thing, like more of a kind of, you know, in terms of rather than that, that generalised loathing for um, Thatcher and the Tories and the whole establishment uh, at the time of Hillsborough and since, has there been... Well, I, uh, you know. I, I think it actually predates Hillsborough in, in lots of ways. It was... I mean, I, I can remember being on the cop as a kid and hearing Maggie, 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 out, 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 quite regularly. Uh, and this is the mid-80s, this isn't post-1989, that's the mid-80s. And and, and there was a radicalisation of, of Liverpool as a city during that period. Obviously, you had the militant council. Uh, you had the, and, and during the, and this, this is often overlooked, with the, the Milk Cup final in 84, the All Mayside Cup final, uh, most Liverpool and Everton supporters went down there with wearing stickers, I said we support our local council, which which was was again it was two fingers up to the to the Tory establishment, and and I think that is where it's manifested itself more than proactive support of Labour, and you have to remember that that Liverpool has a complex relationship with Labour because uh, certainly on the Hillsborough issue, which Jack Straw was was a bomb abominable on, he 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 let the he let the party down, he let the city down, he let the Hillsborough families down, so so the, there is a complex relationship with Labour. Uh, but Corbyn fits more easily into Liverpool's idea of what Labour politics is, uh, and and there may be people who have misgivings about him as a leader. And I think there's a growing number of th- those. But that idea of what socialism is uh, and what 
uh, people should stand up for. That does fit in with the Liverpool way of seeing politics. So that is why I think now you're seeing that, at least in this case, you're seeing that banner where there's previously... You wouldn't have seen one in support of Tony Blair, that's for sure. <laughs> How has the uh, history of it been uh, in terms of the, the response of the players and the kind of um, directors, I guess, of the club going back over the years? I mean, have, have any of them sort of uh, showed sympathies one way or the other? I mean, like, the only one I can think of, really, from the playing side is Robbie Fowler with his, his protest for the Dockers in, was it, 96? Um but but do you think that this uh, feeling in the crowd has also been reflected in the team, the staff, the directors? No, I don't think it has. And again, this is where it becomes complex. I think again, taking it back to mid eighties, the Everton dressing room. If you think of the the people in there at that time, Neville Southall, very outspoken against the Tory government, Peter Reid, Gary Lineker, uh, these people placed in the mid eighties, Liverpool dressing room. Sorry, Tony, was was Gary was Gary Lineker also outspoken in that way in the mid eighties? No, he wasn't. He wasn't then. Right. But we now see that we we now see what his politics is. Whereas the Liverpool dressing room of that era would have been much more to the right. There's no question about that. Uh, which is strange in itself. It was. I mean, uh, John Smith, the Liverpool chairman, the long-serving Liverpool chairman, who, who was one of the great administrators of the English game. Uh, Shankly's nickname for him was Enoch Powell. So, so Liverpool and Liverpool's been a conservative city in the past. So it's it's complex on all of these different levels, and it, it's one of those where. Shankly gets brought into it, and I'm I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that because although he had these great statements about socialism and the socialism he believes in, and, and I I buy into his his arguments about socialism, he was he was very clear in that he didn't allow the place to talk about politics or religion in the dressing room. Though those issues were banned for him, so for someone who was seen as being so political, he actually knew that there was a place for it, and on the football pitch and in the dressing room probably wasn't it. Uh, so I think there's a bit of mythology, and there always is, that that's built up around Shankly and his politics on on that front. And I, I think Liverpool as a whole, the idea that the club is a, is in any way left left leaning, I, I don't think there's anything to support that. But what there is is, is there's clearly, probably from from the 80s onwards, uh, a, a growth in the idea that Liverpool supporters are of the left. They're certainly locally locally born Liverpool supporters tend to be of the left, and there is there is a dynamic of politics that can manifest itself in games in different ways. Is Corbyn himself, and I'm sure he'll take these displays of support wherever they come from, be it in football grounds or elsewhere at the moment, Tony, is is he particularly popular among Liverpool fans more so than it seems in a lot of other parts in the country, Liverpool people I should say, or is it just that particularly, as you say, since the 80s and maybe since Hillsborough, they'd vote for basically anybody or anything rather than vote a Conservative? Yeah, he, he is more popular than he is in other parts of the country, and, and Michael Foot would have been as well. And I look at Corbyn and I see all his flaws, uh, I see all the weaknesses that 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 lots of other people do. Uh, and but I went I went to a, a rally not long back at St George's Hall in Liverpool, and and there was, was twelve thousand people there, uh, and it was a great turnout, and it was a very passionate turnout, the kind that you wouldn't tend to get in most other cities in this country. Liverpool does stand alone politically in lots of ways. It's, uh, it does like to be more radical. Uh, and this is relatively new. People think it's historical. It isn't. Liverpool, as I say, was a conservative city for a long, long time. Uh, and it's the, it's the last 30 years where, where this left-wing uh, element has, has come to the fore uh, and, and basically taking control of the city's politics. Uh, I don't think it's associated with, with Hillsborough as, as, as others might. Uh, I think I think people 
sort of separate Hillsborough. They see how Labour failed on Hillsborough. They see that the Home Secretary who actually uh, ordered new in- inquest was a Conservative one, it was Theresa May, who the people of Liverpool, not to, to a man and woman, but the overwhelming majority, will despise Theresa May, but you have to separate that out and say, yeah, she did that. So, so again, there is another layer of complexity. But, yeah, Corbyn will be best received in Liverpool than he would be pretty much anywhere else in the country just because his politics, for better or worse, fits in with the, with the city's politics. It's interesting when you, when you say those 12,000 people at a rally uh, for Corbyn and the, the kind of excitement around that that you're talking about. I wonder, does Jurgen Klopp get a little bit jealous? I mean, I know more people more people turn up to watch him and his team than turned up to watch Jeremy Corbyn. I suppose they've got all the facilities in place there. But he has... There's an interesting parallel there between Klopp uh, demanding more from the Liverpool crowd, which he's been kind of doing over the last little while. He's kind of been saying, you know, it'd be nice if people sort of, you know, while they're in the stadium, really, really gave it everything and showed they were believers, not doubters. And, and actually what's happening on a on wide scale with Labour, with the kind of Corbyn supporters saying, yes, I know you don't like Jeremy Corbyn, but could we all just concentrate on what's important here and, and line up, get our ducks in a row for the next few weeks? Yeah, but it's a bit of an I think in, in Klopp, he's, he's like Corbyn, he's realising that the, his constituency is not as, as, as he would like it to be. I think he's discovering that the crowd he would want isn't in place. I think I think he's discovering that the economic conditions that make football what it is means that if you want a vociferous crowd week in, week out, the Premier League probably isn't the place where it's going to happen. Uh, and I'm and I'm, I'm I, I, I think Klopp is right. I think the Liverpool crowd is 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 what it is in lots of ways. I think he is justified to demand more, but I all think he's a little bit unrealistic. I, th- I think that the Liverpool crowd, like other Premier League crowds, has a different demographic demographic to it, to what it's been in the past. And I think if you want passion, you need more young people for a start. I think you need less middle-aged people. Uh, and I think they also have to appeal to a, a more local audience because I think that is lacking. So I think he's appealing for something that isn't really there, and that may may well be what Corbyn's doing. And I think we'll find that out of the ballot box. Another thing that might help, I think, I mean, based on watching the Liverpool Southampton match yesterday, would be to get a couple of midfielders who move the ball around a bit quicker than Emre Chan and Lucas. Uh, I mean, every it, it seems like every time. Um, I've seen Liverpool in recent weeks, and and they've been they've been involved in these slow games where they're really it really doesn't look like they have any ideas how to score. And the problems, to me, seem to originate from the fact that the ball is at the feet of Emre Can and or or Lucas, uh, who, who admittedly maybe aren't the first choice uh, players for this kind of deeper midfield position. But when they've got the ball, it just takes forever for anything to happen, and when it when it does, it's not particularly good. No, but I think the interesting thing about that is I think a lot of people are t- making a mistake of thinking that this isn't how Klopp wants it to be. I think it's very deliberate. I think this is how Klopp wants Liverpool to be playing football right now. I think there's two reasons for that. I think he knows the team lacks pace without Manny, and I don't think he trusts the defence. And I think those two things together have meant that he has set Liverpool up to be much more solid, much more methodical, less off the cuff, less dynamic. And he actually signalled this five, six weeks ago when he said uh, Liverpool have to win ugly. That's the way it's going to be from now until the end of the season. And I thought it was a big shout for him because it was not what you'd expect of him. 
Uh, he's since he's since talked a lot about growing up football, and I think he's right. Liverpool do need to be able to play more growing up football. You don't want when you one nil up away to Watford in the last minute. You don't want centre back crossing to another centre back from open play uh, and leaving yourself exposed. You don't want those things. But he's gone from one extreme to another, and I think what his thought process is that if Liverpool can keep clean sheets, if they can keep things tight, that they will have a little bit extra quality that will show uh, in, at the opposite end of the pitch. And, and that, that certainly happened with Emre Chan at Watford, but that's an extreme example. You're not going to get a weird class over a kick every week. Uh, and, and at Anfield, that strategy does look flawed. And there are, there are different players that I think could have a, a part to play at Liverpool. I think James Milner has been running in blue for about three months. And his penalty miss, I don't think that is that much of a worry because he tends to score his penalties. But his, his overall general play is got worse and worse week in, week out. And I don't understand. I mean, obviously you see Alberto Moreno flipping bottles on the bench yesterday, which isn't the best look for any player. But he has pace. He will run in behind. And for all his weaknesses, Liverpool lack players who do that at the minute. And I think sometimes, at half-time yesterday, I would have liked to see Moreno brought on. I would have liked to see Adam Lallana brought on. And that type of issue of players moving the ball slowly then gets solved by the changes that you can make uh, with the personnel you already have. And Klopp isn't doing that. Which makes me think, as I say, he is happy with the way the team is, is performing. And he thinks that they will just about have enough to get across the line. But but it's certainly fraught with danger, and, and, and that's the problem. Liverpool could, yeah, uh, blow Champions League qualification. If that happened, that would be disastrous in terms of their season. All right, Tony Barrett, joe.co.uk. Nice to talk politics today. Thanks, Tony. Cheers, Jens. Good to speak to you. Bye-bye. Do you buy that line from Klopp that they have to play grown-up football? Win ugly, whatever euphemism you want to use there, or do you just feel that? Do you maintain that these players who are playing the football aren't of the caliber required? No, I think he's. I think he's right that they have to do that. They have to learn how to do that. I just don't feel as though they have enough quality to actually break down a, a decent Premier League team who is who who has decided to come and say, "All right, we're we are going to defend and counter attack, and we know what we're doing, and see if you can find a way through that." I just don't feel as though, and I, and the quality, the lack of quality, I think, is not so much in the actual forward line, but in the midfield line that's trying to, you know, link up with the attack. They, they're just not. I mean, Emery Chan has Klopp was always complimenting and talking about it. You know, this is, he's a good player, he's a good boy. You know, he understands, gets the club, blah blah blah. And uh, one of the Dortmund players when they played Dortmund last year was like, oh, you know, I know Emery Chan's going to be all right there. He's just Klopp's kind of player. Um, so there's obviously things that he likes about him. He scored a ridiculously good goal last week. So he's, he's got ability, but it takes too long to do everything. Mm. You know, it's you can still play very controlled possession football, but you can st- you can play it quickly. You know, you you have to play it quickly, or you just end up doing what Liverpool do, which is passing the ball to each other in midfield, and nothing is happening. You know, just passing the ball just inside the opponent's half. But by definition, nothing is happening at the other end either, which I think is Klopp's point. Yeah. We're not we're not at the sta- stage we need to be at defensively. We don't have pace at the moment uh, up front. So let's have a lot of nothing going on in midfield. Yeah. I, I, I do feel, I mean, obviously they do, you know, with Mane missing, Henderson missing, these are injuries that which have weakened them, but really show as well how poor their squad is. Like they really do need to, they, they, they have a good first team and nothing behind it. So, um, 
yeah, it's. I think he's going to have to do a lot, really, a lot of work because they they could quite easily rebound back to you know six, seven, eight, eight next season if they don't. Daniel Harris was at the Emirates to watch Arsenal roar back into contention for a top four finish. It didn't seem like the crowd were getting very excited though. Daniel, was this one of the more tame Arsenal Man United games that you've ever been at? Um, it was. I- They've been tamed for quite a while, really. And part of that is just a feature of the Emirates that doesn't do atmosphere very well. And I also think that people at Arsenal have had enough, really. Just before kickoff, it was it was not close to full. And it did fill up during the game, but there was no uh, there was no sense of anything very important taking place, that's for sure. It just when you say the actual the feature of the Emirates itself, I know itself, I know it has had this reputation of not creating great atmospheres, but if by some bizarre miracle Arsene Wenger stays on and signs some great players in the summer and they have a title tilt next year and win the whole thing. Is there something about the stadium still that doesn't lend itself to creating any sort of any sort of vibrancy? I would say so. I mean, I think stadium is a much better word for it. It's a stadium. It's not really a ground. Mm. And the problem for them, I guess, is they were in that first generation of rebuilds and other teams who are building new grounds will see what happened at the Emirates and will do something different like Spurs appear to be trying to do. Although I say that, but then Wembley is a mess and Cardiff isn't. So what's the it's issue, not though? Really Specifically, what's the problem with the Emirates? It's, um, it's shallow. The banking is shallow and it's quite round. What you want in a proper football ground is you want it to be a rectangle and you want it to be steep mm. so that the seats are all close to the pitch, even if, even if they're not actually close to the pitch in terms of the way that, in terms of distance, I guess. But it feels like they're on top of the pitch. And the Emirates goes backwards rather than upwards, I would say. And um, you've also got the uh, the corporates in the middle, which makes it hard to get any kind of atmosphere going also. And um, the shallowness makes it difficult to see what's going on down the other end with any kind of clarity. Um, and so it's uh, it's just none of the things that you would look for in a football ground are present in the Emirates, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fairly stinging review of... Uh... Well, there is a football pitch in the middle. There's, there is a football pitch there, yeah, so ultimately the game can be played. A yeah. lovely, a lovely lush uh, green football pitch on which Manchester United were fairly conclusively beaten. Down. But I wonder, what, what did you think? I mean, before the game, you saw the team that Jose Mourinho had picked, and this was in the context of Liverpool having, having just messed it up again. Um, against Southampton, although maybe they were still playing by the time that team sheet was uh, was put in, did it seem a bit defeatist from Jose Mourinho to pick a to pick a team where he was he, he was quite uh, obviously saying this match is of secondary importance to me now. The Europa League is what matters, and I will pick a team that reflects that. When you know he was kind of assuming the worst before it had even happened, he was assuming that Liverpool were going to win before they'd even got the points. It was, it was, and that ended up costing Manchester United. I'm not sure it was so much that, but it's that if you look at the way the fixtures are, um, United, would you would think, would have to win at Spurs, although, yeah, Liverpool might not beat West Ham. And then, assuming that they get past Vigo, and it seems that even they could not could not make a mess of this one, then, then they've got two more games. They've got to play Southampton away. That's another difficult game around the final. And if you look at Mourinho's most important players. He's basically got five players who play in pretty much every team when he cares about the game. Valencia, who wasn't there. You've got Bailly, who didn't look fit in Vigo and they really can't do without. You've got Pogba, who's had two overplaying injuries this season. And um, you've got Rashford um, and Herrera. So Herrera played and Rashford also hobbled off at the end of the game um, in, in Vigo. And they would be really, they would really have a problem 
if he got injured. So I did actually understand Mourinho doing that. I think in, on reflection, you might think, well, if he'd have picked his first 11, the way that Arsenal started, they could have had the, the game won in the first half. But those players have all looked slightly unfit. And you might look back at Pogba, for example, and say, well, Mourinho's actually overplayed him previously to get into this situation. There was no reason, for example, why he had Pogba going to St Etienne to play, with, to play a jolly against his brother with United three up from the first leg. He might not have taken Pogba to Rostov when you've got a guy who hasn't had a pre-season, who played through the summer and plays in all the games and plays all the minutes of all the games. But now that we're here, I could see why he didn't want to play Pogba in that game because he doesn't trust his players to get to get to more points in Liverpool, however many times Liverpool make a mess of it. And I think that was fair. Well, I actually, if I was going to criticise Mourinho for yesterday, I would criticise Mourinho for yesterday. It was actually more the way he set his team up. Yeah, this, okay. That. Well, I was going to, I was going to ask you about this because that was, a, that was a pretty good analysis, I guess, of the team that he picked. But, you know, Manchester United still have a very powerful squad. I mean, whatever Mourinho was saying, when you you know, when you you're missing several of your key players and you can still play guys like Martial, Mkhitaryan, Mata, you've got a good squad. And I just wonder what Manchester United fans are making of the fact that once again, as in every single big game this season, they're playing a back six, you know, they're they're clinging on by their fingernails. It's clearly all about getting a clean sheet. It's just and so there's no they now have this record of not having scored a goal away to any of the bigger sides that they've played uh, in the league this season. It's, is it beginning to grind on people's gears a little bit? Um, I think that most people, if, if Mourinho can win the UEFA Cup, then that will be a fair season. Well, are we people saying, are we saying then that, the, that the results justify the, um, the methods employed? I mean, you know, if, if Manchester United win the Europa League this season, they still have a manager who, who is so scared of losing a big game that he sets out just not to lose. No, 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 I'm not saying the results justified at all. What I'm saying is that if, 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 if he were to end up with two trophies to show for it, that would represent some level of progress because there have been elements of progress from last season, which isn't saying very much at all. Um, I think that if it carried on in this vein next season when he's presumably gone spent another thousand, million, billion, trillion pounds buying whoever he wants, and actually this is kind of something which has looked like a bit of a fault that both he and Guardiola have where it almost seems as though they think the only way to sort out the squads that they were left is to go and buy literally the people that they think are the best players in the world. I don't think we're going to see very many clever purchases from either of them. But I think that people will... No, no one was pleased with how United played yesterday, I don't think. Uh, there wasn't anything to be pleased about. But um, the, way, and the way that they played in some of the games this season were, was really not acceptable in terms of the approach. I think yesterday... They were more inclined to try and score some goals than the way they played at Anfield earlier in the season, which was appalling. Um, although it was kind of presented as some kind of Mourinho masterclass at the time, uh, I didn't see it like that at the time. Don't see it like that now. But the way that he set up the team yesterday was, I thought, was peculiar because um, Chelsea played their three-four-three, three-four-one-two, whatever you want to call it, and Mourinho played with two strikers. He played Rashford and Lingard up front. And he also exploited the fact that with that formation, with three at the back, you're always going to have holes in the corners. And he exploited that with Rashford's ability to run across the front line and got the fullbacks forward. Whereas Arsenal yesterday, you've got their 3-4-3, which is just 
desperation from Arsene Wenger. I mean, he admitted it himself that when the team's not playing well, if you can change the formation, then it gives them something to focus on beyond how badly they're playing. So he's he's got this 3-4-3 that doesn't suit the players that he's got. The players are playing without any confidence. They were absolutely walloped by Tottenham in a game that they could have lost by way more than... Than, the, than, than was it 2 0? Forgotten. It could have been 17 0. Than whatever it was, they were absolutely taken apart by their local rivals, not even playing that well, just playing competently. So I found it odd that Mourinho chose to play Martial on his own up front, given that the guy, he's not really a centre forward, Martial. He's a forward who can play in the middle, but he doesn't make a centre forward's runs. He doesn't really have a nose for a chance in the way that Rashford does, in the way that the best centre forwards do. But to play him there on his own, one against three, and then to play Mkhitaryan more or less as a wing-back. And then obviously, I understood why he played Mata, because he's going to want to use him in the, this, the season and he needs to get match fit. But it was more just that one versus three up front. And then I'm not quite sure what he expected from Rooney. And on that basis, you're kind of thinking, how does he think that United are going to score in this game? Yeah, that's a fair point. Wenger afterwards was quite studious in avoiding any sort of talking up of how important it was for him finally to get one over and Jose Mourinho. Mourinho uh, kind of got a little bit stuck into Wenger for moaning at referees. Nothing nothing particularly incendiary compared to previous feuds between the two. I saw there's a piece by Daniel Taylor in The Observer in which he argued that a lot of that venom is gone because Wenger's declined so much that he's no longer worth hating, essentially, which is a narrative that's been around the place for, well, probably since Mourinho came back in with Chelsea for his second spell. But surely that is a nonsense now since the beginning of last season, Wenger's got 1.86 points per game. Mourinho's got 1.56 points per game. That's over the course of a nearly two full seasons. Is it the case that Mourinho is actually almost as irrelevant to what happens at the very top of the table as Wenger, isn't it? Um, I think the Wenger narrative of he's not worth hating anymore predates Mourinho, actually, is from his rapprochement with Fergie, mm. who... So he basically left him alone for the last part of his career. And perhaps it's because people mellow as they get older. They have similar experiences. But, yeah, principally, Wenger was no, hasn't been any kind of threat since, since he won his last league title. They haven't really got anywhere near winning another one. As for Mourinho, I think it's slightly different because Wenger has built this team over, over a generation, more or less. Whereas Mourinho has come into a team that I think everyone agreed was broken. And it may be that Mourinho's, we never said that Mourinho's past his best, but Mourinho at the same time is already established, definitely in his own mind. And I think probably in the public conception, whatever else he does from here, he's a great of the game because he's done some amazing things. And um, if, if Mourinho has another bad season next season, then it probably will be fair to say that he is, he is irrelevant himself. But I think it would be harsh to say that he is irrelevant, given that he won the league two seasons ago and he picked up this team that was in a bad place. He's won a trophy. He might win another trophy. And this isn't to say that what we've seen in the league is in any way satisfactory or as well as he should have done with the players he's had available, because uh, it isn't. And the big game performances haven't been acceptable either. But before we deem him irrelevant, I think we can allow ourselves one more season of, of finding that out. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it was definitely the case now. Daniel, great to chat. Thanks a million. No worries, bye. You're just a crying big baby. But you cannot call a player a baby. Coach! 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 This is the game you want.
you wanted victory, but you didn't have a wobble. I want victory for every game. Where do you think you got it all wrong today? Coach. Which is the game you wanted victory, but you didn't have a wobble? Well, it's just the, the nervousness. You look frustrated on the Coach. pitch. Which is the game you wanted victory, but you didn't have a wobble? You wanted victory. Well, I wanted victory. Coach. Which is the game you wanted victory, but you didn't have a wobble? Where do you think you got it all wrong today? won against them in the premiership and we never said they are baby. He's just a crying big baby. And you cannot call a player a baby. Too soon came to write Mourinho off as irrelevant. I just didn't understand. I mean, Daniel Taylor is, is, I think, the current sports journalist of the year. Maybe even, I mean, he certainly won major awards recently and he was the guy who did the the uh, investigation into abuse or who broke the story about abuse, child abuse in football mm-hmm. and has done a lot of great work, has done a lot of very good stuff about Manchester United. Great Alex Ferguson, Ferguson book, book all those years ago, yeah. Yeah, um, so, you know, it was one of the top, but I, was, I have to say I was surprised by this. I, I mean, I was looking at this guy and the decline and Arsene Wenger has made Jose Mourinho feel almost, you know, he's like got this condescending uh peaceful attitude it was mentioned in the commentary yesterday as well you know it's like is it worse when Jose Mourinho is patronising patronising you Arsene Wenger but Jose Mourinho has, has done really badly over the last two years I mean really terribly even against Arsene Wenger I think he's won one of his last four matches against him and been beaten twice this is a guy who he used to always beat I mean who's in decline here Who's actually in decline? I mean, who's who's falling way short? Actually, they're both falling way short of their preseason expectations. It was uh, Patrick at Chaufini tweeted to say, "Please read out the following uh, tweets uh, or the following quotes tomorrow," um, and just had a link to to one of Mourinho's the you know the start of the season sets a stall out. What does he want? The champion, the uh, to be champion. You know, the target isn't the top four. You know, he certainly doesn't mention the Europa League. Uh, he, he does mention the Europa League in the context of complaining about how it complicates the league. But, you know, to say before the season starts, the tough four is the target. Tough four is not the target. We play to be champions. Um, uh, when you can't be champion, the next target is tough four. But I don't want to hide behind a bad season or no Champions League football to say we want to finish top four. I mean, it's just, he, you know, there wasn't, a, he, he's basically saying, I'm not here to do one of these. Uh, three-year plans. You hear other managers talk about. I'm here to, for instant success. Well, it's a long way short of that, and it's not like he's been under-resourced. They broke the world transfer record. You know, they'll put a lot more money at it. I'm sure this summer, but the signs, based on what you've seen this season, would you say the signs are, are really that encouraging? I mean, they could bring in some some top players. Maybe the players figure it out themselves. But I haven't seen much evidence of, you know, an ingenious chemistry behind the ingredients that they already have. And they do have some fabulous ingredients. There are two very different s- s- sort of declines in it. Wenger has stayed at rough at a vaguely similar level for a long time now. But that level is so far below where he was at that the irrelevance comes from that. Will he ever get back? Get that sort of power back? Whereas Mourinho's way, way below where he was with Chelsea even two seasons ago. Mm. His, his second, his last season with Chelsea when that he was sacked during and this season Manchester United is so far below where he was but it has only been two bad seasons. So for that reason it seems so more plausible that Mourinho could sort of rebound from this. Probably. That it could, could be just a two-year blitz. He's got a bit more margin for improvement maybe and he 
yeah, he has. He's shown that he's shown more recently that he can be at the level that he needs to improve. And also, I mean, Manchester United fans just aren't. They haven't had ten years of this, uh, you know, uh, stuff from Mourinho. Whereas in Arsenal, obviously, they've been they've been doing nothing but watch Arsene Wenger do broadly what he's been doing for the last six months for the last ten years. All right, we'll wrap things up now. We've got another podcast to record today, which is going to include a good chat on Nike and uh, their well. There were athletes involved, but largely Nike's assault <laughs> on the two-hour marathon over the weekend. Thanks very much, Ken. Thanks very Thanks much, so. Thank Thanks you all. Thank you, Ken. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon. Which phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. 